Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, it's Manveen here. This episode is about a looming crisis in the cemeteries of Britain. Many of them are running out of space. One of the producers from Stories of Our Times, Leona Hamid, has taken a closer look at the issue. You can learn a lot about a society by looking at the way it treats its dead. Some London boroughs have no burial space at all. So if you die in, in a central London borough, chances are if you want to find burial space, you'll have to travel outside of that borough. And in Britain, a crisis is looming, exacerbated by COVID-19. I am very frustrated because... We have ministers who come into the position and there is a ministerial change. It goes back again to square one. Are we on the brink of running out of burial space? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Leona Hamid. Today, Britain's overflowing cemeteries, how to solve a grave problem. The weekend just passed, I did one of the only COVID-compliant tourist activities available, a walk through Highgate Cemetery, one of the oldest and most famous from London's Victorian past. We've just entered the east side of Highgate Cemetery and it looks really full. There's a little sign at the front and it says toilets this way and marks this way. We definitely want to see Karl Marx. But it's not just a tourist attraction. It's still a working cemetery, but space is at a premium. It's just like a crowd of crosses. With bunches of daffodils, a lot of daffodils blooming because it's spring, which is nice. It's so full down there. Manning the entrance of the west side of the cemetery was John, a volunteer. Good morning, how are you going? Uh, fine. That looks very interesting. Yeah. Have you booked to come in? Yes. Okay, good. You're making a little documentary, are you? Yes, I am. Okay. Coincidentally, he's a radio broadcaster by trade. I'm John Waite. Um, I've been a volunteer here for more years than I care to remember. I come every week, two days, sometimes three. John first came to Highgate in 1976 to make a report on the reopening of the cemetery. I was a young radio reporter, a bit like you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and what I, a weird coincidence. And I, that's why I came over to you. I recognise that. And um, I, I've been coming here ever since, would you wow. believe? Yeah. So I come each weekend and sometimes during the week. It has a curiously hypnotic effect. It's famed for some of its more high-profile occupants. Karl Marx, Claudia Jones, Douglas Adams, George Eliot. What's your favourite bit? 
Uh, my daughter is buried here, oh, so really? I wouldn't say favourite is the word, but I am so glad that that's why, uh, that's where she is. I made such a good decision burying her here. Highgate Cemetery is more than just a historical tour stop. It's a working cemetery, but it's running out of space. And the friends of Highgate Cemetery, who run the place, have a plan. It's been amazing what they've done. This is seizing the future, actually putting a vision of the future on this place. So it's never happened before. The trouble with space in cemeteries, why it's difficult to get a straight answer, is cemetery space is notoriously elastic. This is Ian Dungavell, chief exec of the Friends of Highgate Cemetery Trust. I caught up with him after my tour to find out more. There's always somewhere else that you can find some place to bury someone if the incentive is there. And that's happened in cemeteries all across London. It's happened in Highgate since oh, at least the early 20th century, where people have been crammed in. There are over 170,000 people buried at Highgate, so they know a thing or two about using space. We have a path. Just bury people on the path. And you put the, you know, put the headstones up and you can't walk up the path anymore, but hey, hey, that's okay. And then you bury in places that are meant to be gardens. So these cemeteries, which used to be really attractive, then really just become stuffed to the gills. And so then you think, mm, uh, the roads, well, I could probably do with a couple of less roads and I could do with narrow roads, so I'll do that. Well, what do we do next? A uh, great idea is getting in lots of extra soil and mounding it up on top of existing burial places. And then you think, well, underneath that tree, people haven't really buried there before, so I'll bury around the tree. Of course, you eventually you end up by you know one grave at a time trashing the remarkable heritage of the cemetery. And although you solve the problem I guess, of where to bury someone. You don't actually create a very nice burial environment. They were meant to be leafy, green, less cluttered spaces than the churchyards in the centre of town. And they were beautifully laid out and well-tended. And in some cases in London, um, cemeteries, you end up with a ridiculous situation where at some stage in the past, people have cleared monuments from tops of graves and just put turf down because that's cheaper to look after. It's cheaper to mow and the memorials have disappeared. So we've got to, we've come to a crunch point at Highgate. For this reason, there's a private member's bill in Parliament right now, which, if passed, will allow Highgate Cemetery to start reusing some of their oldest graves. Ones that are no longer wanted by their historic owners, or where there's nothing left of the bodies that once lay there. I've continued to be just interested in how society thinks about kind of what happens when someone dies. This is Dr Julie Rugg. My name's Julie Rugg and I work at the University of York in social policy and social work. Julie has 30 years of expertise in cemeteries. Because the decisions that we make, in my view, tell us an awful lot about how we think about death and what we find comforting uh, when somebody's died. How many cemeteries, graveyards are there in Britain at the moment? We don't know. <laughs> we absolutely don't know. It sounds a bit bizarre. <laughs> Why? Uh, because we're very odd. 
There's no statutory responsibility. It's nobody's job to provide burial space. So the Church of England, a lot of rural areas still have churchyards that are still open, but the Church of England doesn't know how many. We have some London boroughs, we've got town councils, we've got borough councils, lots of different organisations provide burial space, but nobody counts how many of those burial spaces there are, um, what capacity they have and what kind of problems they have. So it's really hard for us to sort of understand where we are. You know, if there are problems relating to space, difficult for us to put a figure to that problem because we really don't know the basics in this country and that makes strategic planning really difficult. I mean, that just seems astounding. One of the only things that we all have in common is that we know that we are eventually all going to die. It seems crazy that that's nobody's responsibility. Yeah, it is absolutely mad. And it's kind of, even at the planning level, there's kind of no responsibility for ensuring that there is sufficient burial space for the people who need it. So we know some London boroughs have no burial space at all. So if you die in in a central London borough, chances are if you want to find burial space, you'll have to travel outside of that borough. And that creates problems, I think, because a lot of local authorities, if you come from outside the borough and you want to be buried in the local cemetery, they will charge you maybe double or even triple the amount that they would charge a local resident uh, because you're coming from out of the borough. You've not paid the rates to subsidise the cemetery. So there are lots of policy problems that sit with our lack of understanding of what's going on, our lack of strategic oversight, which creates difficulties for everybody. According to Julie, the majority of people will be cremated after they die, about 80%. For those who prefer burial, many might already own a family plot. But for the rest, fresh burial space is required, and it's starting to run low. Because unlike most other countries, here, there's no system of grave reuse. Once somebody is buried in a particular locality, then that's it, kind of pretty much for all time. It happens in churchyards, but it can't happen in municipal burial grounds. This is the heart of the problem we've got at the minute, that we can't reuse that space, which means actually our system is kind of fatally flawed, essentially. So why can't grave sites be reused? It's not a new phenomenon. We're still reliant on Victorian legislation. This sounds absolutely crazy that we're still using legislation that's well over 150 years old. This was a clause that was kind of slipped into one of the burial acts. It's all very arcane. And there's a particular piece of legislation which sort of said that for a body to be disturbed once it's buried, you have to get a specific licence from the Home Office, or what was then the Home Office, now it's the Ministry of Justice. What it wanted to do was prevent families just exhuming bodies and moving them around because there'd been a case of that happening. So they said, well, you know, you can't do an exhumation without a licence, and that seems really logical. Victorians had built cemeteries on the presumption that graves would be reused because that was the sensible sort of approach to things. But over time, the kind of resistance to the notion of using the grave again, it kind of crept in. And now it's the case that this very odd little clause that was slipped into one of the burial acts quite accidentally almost is entirely stopping us from using that space again. So now if there's any kind of suspicion that a body might be disturbed, you have to go to the Ministry of Justice, you have to get an exhumation licence, permission to disturb the body, and the Ministry of Justice won't give you a licence if you want to use that grave again. Why? Why? (laughs) It just doesn't. And it's a bit crazy, really. I mean... I don't know. It's, you know, I've been working at this for oh, well over 30 years now and it mystifies me. Can you explain what you mean by reusing graves? Local authorities 
have huge amounts of records. So if we look at a grave, we know when the last burial took place in that grave. So we would, we would be able to sort of pinpoint, actually, the last burial in this grave took place maybe 100 years ago. We would have that information. So what would happen is that the local authority would dig that grave as if it was a new grave, but any fragments of, of any kind of skeletal remains that it came across, those would be placed sometimes in a Hessian bag and then actually buried right at the bottom of the grave. So they wouldn't be taken away, they wouldn't be cremated. They're still in the same grave, they're just a little bit lower down. And then the local authority would use that grave as if it was new. And that's pretty much what's happened in a lot of churchyards for the last thousand years. Before the Victorian era, most burials took place in churchyards, where grave reuse was the norm. You can't kind of book a space in a churchyard. It doesn't work like, like that. <laughs> you know, you're buried in the churchyard and then after a while you get disturbed. That's, that's the kind of like, that's the plan of the churchyard. That's how it works. Bodies were being disturbed almost within weeks of being buried. These are the times when you had grave snatchings, huge moral panic attached to grave robbing. And a lot of that was quite sexualised, the notion that actually somebody's going to come in and take your sister or your mother out of the mm. grave, take that body away and do things to it, was kind of like kind of innately distressing to people. So the notion that the Victorians were saying, look, you know, here we've got this space where you can control what goes on and you can protect your family, that was quite a big, quite a big thing. They've got a family grave that they can tend and visit with their other family members and go and have a chat with Granny, that kind of thing, you know, and you go along and, and visit that grave and it's kind of, you know, offers a great deal of consolation. Do you feel like that was a time that introduced this idea of sort of owning a piece of ground forever and that has influenced public policy? Well, well people didn't own it. I mean, that's the thing, that you don't buy, you lease. Was there an idea that, like, this is where... Our family is buried and we're unlikely to be disturbed or was there a knowledge that that space would be eventually reused? The feeling, I think, was that this is space we can control. One of the things that Victorians used to talk about, which is very odd, they used to talk about promiscuity in the grave, to say if you were buried with other people, that was promiscuous burial. So what you didn't like was the idea that your sister, your mother, your wife would be buried in a grave on top of or underneath somebody you didn't know. <laughs> and the, that, that notion is so of promiscuous, not what I was expecting. No, well, the notions of what they call promiscuous mingling was something that people found quite distressing to consider. The big burial legislation sort of comes out in the 1850s. That legislation, it sits there, but it's got guidance that sits next to it that says this is the guidance that helps you through how to use this law. And the guidance was based on the presumption that you would reuse the grave after maybe 25 years which is a bit short. One body per grave, that was the original intention, because then after a period of about 25 years, you can use that grave again. That was the original intention. That was how Victorian cemeteries were originally conceived. But what they hadn't accounted for was the sheer pressure of numbers. The Industrial Revolution was gaining pace, more bodies to bury than anyone could have conceived of, and a higher concentration of people living cheek by jowl in smoggy Victorian cities. Real estate was scarce. Some cemeteries were dealing with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of burials a year. And they were thinking, we can't just bury one body in each grave. It's just simply not feasible. The numbers are too much for us to deal with, thinking that we're going to have this very gradual system of one body in each grave and going back to it. Instead, we're going to dig really deep, put maybe 20, 30 people in, 
finish that up at the top and say, we won't use that grove again, that'll be the end of it. And then starting the next one and doing the same thing again. So in practice, they arrived at a completely different system from the system that was first anticipated. And that system is the system that we're kind of like still trying to deal with today, which was just an innately unsustainable system. You know, if you think about these big Victorian cemeteries, they're 50, 70 acres big. Nobody thought they would ever run out of space. But that's what's happened. The issue of sustainability matters just as much now. Once burials stop, there's no money coming in to maintain the graves that are already there. What we will find increasingly is that local authorities will say, you know, it's not economic for us. We can't find additional space. We've densified as much as possible. And we know that some boroughs are just stepping back away from it because they're not obliged to do it. And for us, the biggest issue, I think, comes with our Muslim communities because there is a very strong theological requirement for Muslims to be buried. Muslims throughout London are paying the rates, like everybody else, but they have to rely on a charity to make sure that they have the provision they need. That charity in East London is called the Gardens of Peace. This charity is carrying the burden of providing burial space for Muslims from across London. You will be able to see when you enter how peace and tranquil the cemetery is. This is Mohammed Omar. He's a board member for the Gardens of Peace in East London and the chair of the National Burial Council. So you'll see a lot of trees, you'll see a lot of plants. And the most striking thing would be that contrary to what people would believe, Islam is all about equality. So if you come to the cemetery, every grave is identical. So you will not know who is a rich person, poor person, who is a black person, white person. Everybody of the same faith is buried next to each other. At point of death, we are all equal and the Almighty will judge us on our deeds. The Gardens of Peace are one of the very first dedicated Muslim cemeteries in London. For all Muslims, irrespective of their uh, differences. And irrespective too of which part of London you're living in. The first piece of land was bought in 1998 and then four years later, the first burial at the gardens took place. When somebody dies, we need to ensure that that individual is buried as quickly as possible. For Muslim communities, burial is an important part of processing death. So once the necessary paperwork has been obtained from either the hospital or from the GP, from whoever it is, we then would need to collect the deceased, make sure that the first thing we do is wash the deceased, then make sure that we shroud the deceased, and then we make sure that we take that particular deceased to a mosque or a place of where they can have their final prayer done. From there, we take them to the cemetery and where at the cemetery we do the burial process. What we would like and we have achieved in certain cases is that entire process when when somebody dies to the point of burial, if that can be achieved within 24 hours, it's not always possible. But that is basically what is required. And when you go to the cemetery, you see for yourself that, you know, you are burying somebody who may have been a millionaire, yet when he's being buried and lowered in the grave, he has got only the three pieces of cloth for a man and five for a woman, nothing else. He was created from earth and is reunited to earth as well. And that is the lesson which we try and do. Walking through, it looks incredibly different from somewhere like Highgate. All our graves are oriented towards Mecca, which we make sure of that. And the other thing is that we make sure that every grave is maintained and there is a slight hump to it. The reason being is that we have been told that mankind is the best of creation and therefore you should respect 
that individual, whether he's passed away or if he's alive. And if you have a raised hump, you will know somebody is buried there. That's why we, are, we have been told not to step on somebody's grave. And the lesson we learn from that is very simple, that when you have been directed not to step on somebody's grave, even though they've passed away, you respect the human being. When the land was first bought back in the 90s, it was about 21 and a half acres. We naively thought that, you know, this land would last us for 75 years. So at least we will be, within our lifetime, we would not need to worry about the burial space. Within 15 years, that particular space was fully taken up. So we had to buy a second piece of land, and this is where we're operating at the moment. So the demand was already there. More recently, the pandemic added pressure, not only because it made some of the religious rituals difficult, but also because of space. The entire country from different faith groups and non-faith groups have identified that burial space will become an issue going forward. Maybe not immediately in the one to two years, but certainly moving forward, you are going to have problems in terms of burial space. Major cities will be more pronounced like Manchester, Birmingham, London, all those areas will have a serious impact on it. And we already know that in Birmingham, it's a serious problem because the main cemetery, which was used by the Muslims, is already full. For some communities, burial is the only option we have. And it is not only Muslims, it is Orthodox Christians, Orthodox Jewish. So many people prefer burials as opposed to cremation. In just a moment, we'll take a closer look at what's actually preventing legislative reform in this area. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough. Hyaluronic Body Serum. 
It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. So why then hasn't anything changed? According to Julie, the answer is simple. Way back in 2001, there was a parliamentary inquiry that looked at problems with the provision of burial space. And from that point, the Ministry of Justice, the, the relevant ministry, has had an advisory group of all the relevant sort of industry professionals, which twice a year have told the government in no uncertain terms that this is a problem that needs to be dealt with. And every single turnaround of minister, every single one without exception, has asked for more evidence. Surely there has been evidence presented at this point. It's kind of, you know, how much more evidence do you want? What does the government need to sort of see before it thinks, you know what, we need to take a step forward? The minister comes in and then they want some evidence and you think, really? And then, you know, and then the next minister comes in, they want some evidence and it's, oh, really again? And and sometimes you lose the will to live because whichever minister is in charge, they don't seem to be at all willing to do anything about it. You know, maybe 15 years ago, one minister was saying, OK, let's move on this. Let's, let's, do, let's just sort this out. And we were all in shock. Really? You want us to sort it out? But then they were moved on. Within six months, they'd moved on to another ministry and then we were back to you know what, I think we need some evidence. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, oh, really? We're back to where we were. It's just broken. You know, it's, it's like a car with three wheels. When you look at the car, you know it's not going to work because it's only got three wheels. You don't need to say, you know what, I need to see it move before I think it doesn't work. You just know it doesn't work. So how long has this advisory group existed? Since about 2000. So it's been going for quite a long time. Yeah, okay. So twice a year for 21 years. Twice a year for 20 years, yeah. I kind of know, you know, as a historian, looking at burial legislation in the 19th century, some of the big changes took 20, 30, 40 years to come through because there was a huge amount of resistance to doing anything. So I know you have to be patient. But then at the same time, you kind of think, you know what, there's too many things happening here. Mohammed has been part of this advisory group for the last 10 years representing the Muslim community. Yes, we are very frustrated because we personally feel from the industry perspective, right, that we do not think that there has been adequate importance given to this particular area, right? If this industry did not work as efficiently as it does, you would have had bodies piling up in in mortuaries, in uh, temporary uh, storage facilities. And what would you have done with that? And remember, during the first wave, at one point, they were predicting that at least half a million people would die. It's still too much, way, way too much of the numbers which have passed away. But if that had materialized, half a million people had materialized, you just imagine that even if 80% were cremated, 100,000 burial spaces would have been required. So where would you have got the space from? So you cannot really ignore this sector. That has to be part and parcel of any pandemic. And for me, planning for a pandemic should not be a reactive thing. It should be a planned stuff. So you should start planning from now. Don't wait for when the pandemic happens and then you react to it because it's too late in my view. 
The entire sector is seeking from the government to get clarity on the reuse of graves, which the Minister of Justice is fully aware of, subsequent uh, ministers are fully aware of. At the Burial Cremation Advisory Group, I think we would regularly, this would be our almost like a standing item to say that, listen, this, there is this issue, right? And communities themselves would be also raising this matter from time to time with their own councils. So each and everybody is looking at it. And I think you will see time and again, maybe once or twice a year, some of the media will pick it up and then the, the momentum will start again. And as you can see, the burial space in the last three months has been a hot topic for all the media. Every media organization has been coming to discuss about the burial space. The government's view has always been that this varies so much from area to area. So they wanted to, uh, to, uh, to localize the issue rather than trying to put a national issue onto it. And we believe that it requires a two-pronged approach. Not only does it require local, but also it requires a national approach as well to say, okay, fine, this is the framework and this is what you should be able to provide. A local council cannot uh, do a legislation. So it has to come in from the national level. So, experts say there's a very simple solution, one they've been advocating for for many years now. So why are we hurtling towards a crisis? You are through to the Ministry of Justice press office. You will be connected to a press officer as soon as possible. Hi, um, my name's Leona. I'm calling from Stories of Our Times, which is a podcast by The Times and The Sunday Times. I just wanted to make an inquiry about a particular advisory group that's run through the Ministry of Justice. It's called, let me just get my notes up, it's called the Burial and Cremation Advisory Group. Um, and I had a couple of questions about... As a result of this request for an interview, I received this statement from the Ministry of Justice. We're considering whether action may be needed to address this sensitive issue. Any changes in this area, including legislation, would need careful consideration. I did follow up asking about what further consideration is required, but I haven't heard back yet. There is one positive sign on the horizon. The Law Commission and Independent Body are about to commence a project looking into how Britain disposes of its dead. But it's not clear yet whether they'll look at grave reuse. We passed a horrendous milestone in this country, 100,000 people. The number of COVID deaths recorded in the past 24 hours in the UK was more than 1,800. That's yet another record since the pandemic began. Britain Tuesday became the first European country to report 100,000 coronavirus deaths. 25,000 of those have occurred in the past three weeks. The COVID death toll in the UK has now gone past 127,000 people. It's made many of us think about the very practical realities of death. I think for me, what's one of the things that's come through from COVID is that actually people derive a huge amount of comfort from doing the right thing when it comes to a funeral, the right thing for them. So everybody has their own right thing and people need to do what they find correct for their family. And to have these extractionally long delays and to have these restrictions are entirely necessary. We can't do anything about that. But for me, it's kind of underlined the fact that, you know what, these things are really important to people. And it's been quite easy for these things to be forgotten about, but it's really kind of centred attention on 
of the need for us to get funerals right, because I think unless we get the funerals right for us as we need them to be, I think that does carry long-term consequences for people just having a feeling that they've not quite done it properly. And, and I think a lot of people fret about that over a long period of time, that they've not quite done it right. And it, it can kind of you know, create problems for people. Managing death under strict COVID guidelines has completely altered that experience. It's something Muhammad has felt firsthand. It has been very traumatic for us, right? Because there have been restrictions in the number of people who can come in for the funeral and people have still not come to final closure of their loved ones because they're still not able to visit relatives, visit other people to console each other. And I think that has been the most difficult part of it at all. And for me personally, it has been a traumatic year for me because I lost my mother in October to COVID as well. And I know, talking from my own self, that I was not able to be there for my mum when she passed away. I was not yet. I was all the time with her when she was alive. And when her final time came in, I was not able to go there because I was told that we can only allow one person or two person. And if we are six, seven siblings, who are you going to choose? And that level of grief, which I have today for the rest of my life, I will always feel that when I needed to be there with my mother, And her last breath, I was not able to do that. And I'm not the only one. You can't compensate me for that. So, Leona, I've been doing this for a long number of years. I try and help people. I try and console people. But when it happens to you and your own, it's very difficult. You cannot be prepared for that. I treat every family as though it's my own family, right? When it came to my own mother, it was very difficult. If contemporary cemeteries start to run out of space, the real risk is that they'll fall into disrepair. We've forgotten also where many cemeteries in London are. It's something Ian Dungavell from the Highgate Cemetery has had to think about. Anything that's got St Something's Gardens was probably a, either a churchyard or a churchyard extension. So St Pancras Gardens, St Mark's Gardens, St James's Gardens, which has just been dug up to make way for the Channel Tunnel railing. They were all former burial grounds. So you could have a, a bouncy castle, for example, in St Pancras Gardens, but when the kids jumping up on top of the bouncy castle, they're also jumping up on top of generations and generations of dead Londoners who are buried beneath the ground. And in Camden, there's other closed churchyards that, that have mounds of earth that people are sunbathing on. And they're literally f- just a few feet underneath them are thousands of bodies. That sense that it's a special and spiritual place is really important. But when there's no one who remembers directly anyone who's buried there, you lose that protective force. I visited some cemeteries that made me really sad. And one was up in a city in the north. Most parts of it are very, really used. And so the graves were being engulfed by grass and by rhododendron. And it almost looked like a, a, a field in some places because the grass was so tall you couldn't see the monuments. And there's one woman I could see at a distance who'd kept this little space clear around um, presumably her husband or a child she was visiting there. And she was just this one live person in this otherwise totally neglected landscape. And you just thought, well, when she's gone, that's just going to be, you know, she's the last person who cares about this spot. There's no reason for people to look after it. And that's incredibly sad. Some of these are quite imposing. They've got big angels on top and crosses and they look old. Let me have a look. 
Back at Highgate Cemetery, there are rows and rows of historical headstones, moss-covered, barely legible. But that's not all there is. This one says, 2001, somebody who died aged 16. So that's 20 years ago, and this grave is so beautifully maintained. And somebody's put red roses into a vase. 20 years later, somebody's still coming here and paying respects and tending to the grave. Many of the graves in this place are bright, new, lovingly cared for. They're a reminder that however we resolve our grave crisis, we must maintain a place for all of us to farewell our dead. Perhaps now more than ever. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Leona Hamid, and my guests, John Waite, a volunteer at Highgate Cemetery, Ian Dungavell, Chief Exec at Highgate Cemetery, Dr Julie Rugg from the University of York, and Mohammed Omar from the Gardens of Peace in East London. The producer was me, Leona Hamid, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and the sound design was by Vulcan Kizzeltook. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email, storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon.